You know, we talked about this a little bit last week. Um, there is power in the blood of Christ to help us defeat sin. All right. I mean, amen. That's that's what we've been seeing in our study of Ephesians chapter four. And so um, it's in its practical power. And we, we recognize that we know that in our hearts being renewed in our minds means we learn how to appropriate that and what that looks like. So take your Bibles and let's look in the fourth chapter of the book of Ephesians. Craig led you to Colossians, so just take a left back from Colossians. And let's look at Ephesians chapter 4. And I'm going to start reading in verse 17. We looked at part of this last week, but I want us to get our context here. By the way, the pictures, if, you're, if today's your first time at Westwood or you haven't been here before, the pictures that we were showing earlier uh, before the service starts were of our One Day with God um, the, the opportunity that we had this weekend on Friday, uh, Scotty Barnes and her team from, uh, forgiven ministries went into the Dan river prison farm and, uh, spent the day with the men doing a godly dad's conference. And then yesterday the kids came and spent the day with their dads and it was just a cool, cool day as it always is. This was unusual because it was in the facility there. Normally we have it here at the church and we're praying that we'll be able to do that again next year, um, you know, back here in our facility. But it was neat to be able to spend that time there. And so thank you for those who volunteered, for those who prayed. Um, it was it was a good day to do that. So thank you for doing that. One of the, There was a little girl there, looked like Shirley Temple, a little blonde-headed girl. She, she kind of stole everybody's hearts, but Deb Rudd was telling me, uh, her dad had not seen her in four years. Is that right, Deb? Where are you at? What's that? Yeah, well, he said three years. Um, and she said, no, three years and four months, Daddy. I've been counting. So so she hadn't seen him since she was, you know, younger than three years old. But it was cool uh, to see them have that time together. So anyway, thank you for praying for that. So Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Now remember, Gentiles there is not a, it's not a term of, of racial identification there. It's a spiritual term of those who are outside of Christ, okay? The pagans, if you want to refer to it that way, but that's, that's the term. So I want us to, it's important we recognize that. This is just simply a, a way that Paul is referring to those who are not followers of Christ. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become calloused and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another." Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands that he may have something to share with anyone in need. 
Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, as may be, as it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Now let's read on just two more verses. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering, and a sacrifice to God. All right, let's pray. Lord, we do ask you by your Holy Spirit to take this living, powerful word and apply it into each of our hearts. Father, it gets um, right down to the the nitty-gritty of what it means to claim to be a follower of Christ, Lord, in the very way we handle our words, our emotions, um, or the truth that we tell or don't tell. All these things, God, are or just peering right into the very center of our being. And so, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit will work in each of our lives, that, Lord, you would grant us by your grace uh, insight into our own sin through your holy eyes. You'd grant us repentance. And, Father, you'd help us um, as your people who are called to holiness, who are called to have the mind of Christ. Lord, show us what that mind looks like um, in, each, in each of our lives and in, in, in this church family, Lord. And we, uh, we do pray for fruit, Lord, from the time yesterday with, with the guys and their children. Uh, Father, we pray for Scotty and Jack and the rest of the team there at Forgiven Ministries as they serve those, Lord, that we so often forget. We just thank you, Lord, that we can partner and in some small way be a part of that. We just pray your blessing on that, God. We pray fruit from that. We pray for transformed lives, Lord. Father, I pray today for, for our congregation. I pray for... Lord, there are people in this room who are more incarcerated than those men behind bars. Lord, they're incarcerated to their sin, their addictions, their emotions. They're incarcerated and chained up, God. And I pray, Lord, for release. I pray for the blood of Christ, Lord, to do a work. And, Lord, for you to free us from the sin and the strife that entangles and ensnares. Um, Jesus, thank you that, that in you we know what it is to be free. And so we pray for that, Lord, and we do that in Jesus' name. Amen. So it is around us. It is pervasive. It is invisible. And it is deadly. What I mean by that is it infiltrates us. It works its way into our bodies. And if unfound or unchecked, it causes debilitation, disease, and even death. I'm talking about... There are elements in the air that we breathe physically. And I know it's going to differ from location to location. If you're in, if you're in India or China or one of our industrialized cities, not so much now as it used to be, but even here in, in the clean air of Roxborough, we're breathing in arsenic and lead and sulfates and different kinds of carbons. We live in a polluted environment. From one degree to another, and we breathe it in, and and it can kill us if unchecked. Now, spiritually speaking, we live in an even worse environment. All right, we live in an environment that is polluted by untruth, and tribalism, and emotionalism, and avarice, 
and self-centeredness, bitterness, and the air we breathe in our country, the air we breathe in our culture, in this fallen world, yeah, it's all around us, and it infiltrates into our hearts. Now, we recognize that. Well, I hope you do, but I hope you also recognize that it inhabits us even as it surrounds us, that that is who we are in our fallenness. We are liars, we are thieves, we are self-centered, we want it our way when we want it. Now, I know that's not a politically correct statement, I know that's not going to make you walk out of here feeling better about yourself, and that's the whole goal, all right? That's the point of what Paul is trying to show us here. He wants us to remember that as Christians, as those who are in Christ, that person is dead and gone. That's not who we are anymore. That that person has been crucified with Christ, buried with him, and raised a new person, raised a a new being. And And he says we're supposed to have a clean break. We're supposed to live differently. Look at what he says in, in back up earlier. I, I read part of this. I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Their minds are futile. They're empty. Okay, he says we're darkened in our understanding outside of Christ. We're separated from God. And due to the hardness in our hearts, we're ignorant of him. We choose to ignore him. And we get hardened and calloused. And we're given over, he says, to sensuality and greed and every kind of impurity. But then he says, put that off because that's not who we are. It's like taking off a sweaty, nasty set of clothes. Take it off. And don't put back on those filthy rags. Put on something else. That's the former manner of life, he says in verse 22. It was corrupt. It was deceitful. Deceitful desires. Instead, he says, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Put on the new self. So we are saved by grace. We already saw that in Ephesians chapter 2, right? It is by grace we're saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's not from works so that we could boast and take pride in it. It is his grace. But we are not spectators in the striving for holiness. We have to work out our salvation. It's a fight. We are saved to fight, or else we're just surrendered. We don't even recognize the enemy for who he is. And so we're saved for this battle. Here's what John Stott said in his commentary on, on Ephesians. Holiness is not a condition into which we drift. When God recreates us in Christ according to his own likeness, We entirely concur with what he has done. We put off our old self, turn away from it in distaste, and we put on the new life he has created. We embrace it. We welcome it with joy. So in a word, recreation, what God does, and repentance, what we do by grace, belong together and cannot be separated. So today, as we look at this text... We want us, I want us to see, I believe God wants us to see what areas of our lives it is that we need to do the work of repentance. The work of allowing the Holy Spirit to cleanse us so we can be more like Christ when we leave than we were when we came in. Now the theme of Ephesians 4 is the unity and the purity of Christ's church. Unity and purity of his church. 
And God has reconciled to us, his, us to himself through Christ. He's made us one new man. We've already seen that by his grace he chose us before the foundation of the world. It would be holy and blameless. And in love he predestined us for adoption as children. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. So this is a sacred, supernatural relationship that we're in here. All right? That's what the church is. This sacred, supernatural relationship. And, it, and, we're, and it's made up of people who at one time... We're this, but now we're different. We're different people who are called to live differently. And we are, Ephesians 4, 1, called to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called, right? So what exactly is that? Notice he just said, the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So this is one of those sermons where, you know, some old country preacher who says power in the blood would also say, I'm fixing to go to meddling instead of just preaching. But it's not really meddling because it's just reflecting through God's word into the reality of our own hearts. It's the nitty gritty of what it means to be new in Christ. And it gets down to the details, guys. It gets down to the details. Don't lie. This is like a lesson for three-year-olds, okay? Don't lie. Tell the truth. Don't steal. Control your anger. Don't be a hothead. Don't badmouth. It's, 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 you know, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't be unkind and bitter. Instead, be kind and loving. All of these entail what it means to put off the old self, the old man, and put on the new man. And so, let's look at it. Now, before we look at the details, the specifics, notice the structure of what Paul says here. Because that's important for us to understand what he's talking about. These behaviors are not carried out and exhibited in a vacuum. It's relational. It's relational. What he's talking about here is how we relate to one another within the community of faith, within the church body, and how we talk, how we handle our emotions, how we relate to one another. Is either going to hurt, hinder, or help and build up? So it's relational here. Our pursuit of holiness is not some mystical thing that we do in our prayer closet, guys. It's not an alien thing that we do by ourselves. Holiness is community life. And so it's relational here. Everything mentioned either pollutes or builds up the environment of the community around us. All right? Keep that idea of pollution in your mind. Because everything we say, do, either pollutes or clarifies the environment around us. It either hinders, cripples, or helps. And so we need to recognize that. The structure, it's relational first off. Secondly, there needs to be a replacement. The negative replacement is what is replaced that is negative is replaced by something that is positive. And so it's, again, it's the idea of taking off these ratty, nasty clothes, put off, and put on. Don't put back on what's old and smelly. Put on the new. And so it's not enough to stop lying and stop stealing. It's not enough to stop gossiping and losing our temper. Instead of lying, we speak the truth. Instead of being hot-headed and hot-tempered, we control that and we submit it to Christ. Instead of trying to milk the system... And get six hours worth of work and get eight hours worth of pay, we do it all for the glory of God. So it's a matter of replacing that. 
And then thirdly, there's a reason behind these behaviors, okay? There's a biblical theological reason behind what Paul tells us to do here. It either comes from the words of Christ, it comes from the, 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 the apostles' teaching, it comes from the Old Testament teachings that God gave his people about how we're to be different from those around us. There's a biblical theological foundation. Now, the primary foundation, the reason I read it all the way through, the primary foundation that underlies all of what we see in chapter 4, really chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 would go with it, and we'll, we'll include that in there. All right? It says, Be imitators of God as beloved children. As, and walk in love as Christ has loved us and gave himself up for us. That's, that's the foundation for everything that we'll see. Walk as Christ walked. Love as Christ walked. We can't love each other and build each other up with these negative characteristics that we're to put off. So, let's look at the specifics. And by the way, we're not getting through it today, okay? We will not get all the way to the end. I just want you to know that. We'll work to get through three or four of them, okay? So, don't lie. Instead, let's tell the truth. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Here's what we've come to in our culture. Here's what we've come to in our environment around us. Not just WRAL, most, most news outlets, most things that I look at, even the Wall Street Journal will have some version of this, has a truth-a-meter. A truth-meter. So here's the deal. It's really not a question anymore of whether it's truth or a lie. It's how close is it to one or the other. Right? I mean, it goes from green to red. And everything that is said is, is measured, not by whether it's true or false, but how true might it be? How close can it get to the truth? Or how far away? That's the world we live in. That's the world we live in. And, and the therefore in verse 1, I mean, excuse me, therefore that we see in verse 25 looks back to this clear contrast it looks back to the truth that is in Jesus in verse 21. It looks back to verse 22. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self that's being corrupted by, look at this, its deceitful desires. To be made new in the attitude of your minds, to put, off the new, to put on the new self created like God in true righteousness and holiness. Deceitful desires. What are they? They're liars. They're desires that lie to us, that said they would satisfy us, that said they would be enough, and they are neither. It's not enough, and it doesn't satisfy. They never are. They never will be. And the contrast could not be clearer, right? Hang on a minute. I'm having a hard time with this thing. I don't know why. There. Okay. The contrast could not be clearer. Right? Jesus said in John chapter 8 that this world is led, if you will, by the father of what? Lies. The father of lies. When he speaks, he speaks out of his own character, Jesus said, for he is a liar and the father of lies in John eight forty four. In John chapter 1, on the other hand, we're told that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and that 
We have seen his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The contrast couldn't be clearer. The law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John the Baptist, as he pointed people to Jesus, bore witness to the truth. And Jesus said, I am the truth. So the contrast could not be clearer. And and Jesus did make it clear, lest we want to somehow question the sovereignty of God and the purposes of God. No, don't even try to go there. This world is under the control in this fallen sense of the father of lies. Jesus said, now the ruler of this world will be cast out, talking about the work of the cross. So he's the ruler of this world and he's a liar. Martin Lloyd-Jones made this statement. From our standpoint as Christians... To lie is to indicate that we have an affinity with the devil. And a habitual liar belongs to the kingdom of the devil, whose whole being is a lie. He's the father of lies. There's no truth in him. He is the embodiment of evil. And to lie is what he teaches others to do. So this is what the born-again child of God has been delivered from. Paul says in Colossians, we've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness out of the kingdom of falsehood and lie, into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of his beloved son who is the truth. So that's the contrast that we have here. And and what Paul does here is quote directly from the Old Testament prophet Zechariah, speak truth to one another out of Zechariah 8.16. But then he undergirds it with his New Testament understanding of who we are as a community of faith. Put away falsehood, speak the truth to one another because we are members of one another. So if I go to my house this afternoon and I start cooking something on the stove, on the gas stove, and I place my hand on top of that hot eye, if my hand or my nerves lie to the rest of me that that's not hot, I am sick. There's something wrong with me. And what we see here is that because we are a part of the same body, we are brothers and sisters together, we are neighbors that those, those, those lies, those untruths, are deadly to the unity and the love that we have within the body of Christ. A lie, one writer said, is a stab into the very vitals of the body of Christ. Just take that sword and stick it in, in that untruth. I like to think of it as a hand grenade just kind of lobbed into the fellowship and just blowing it all up. That's what, that's what these untruths are. And, there's, and so here's the deal with our truth-o-meter culture. How, how close can we get? How much can we leave out and still be able to live with ourselves in the story that we're telling or the position that we're taking? Or the people we support. How close can we get? You know, the little white lie, the little persistent story, the, the silence, the truths that are left out, the portions that are left out. I mean, self and pride are underneath all of this. I mean, just think about, think about the social media persona that we're willing to put up for others to see. Right? I mean, it's going to be as good as it can be. And it's just a culture that we're in. It's what we want others to see and hear. So the prohibition is clear. Don't lie. 
don't see how close we can get to it. Instead, later on, we'll see that we're to speak the truth in love. That's a part of what it means to grow up into every, in every way into him who is the head. So don't lie. Instead, speak truth to our neighbors, to each other within the body of Christ. And the reason for that, that's not who we are. Don't, don't linger in the darkness. Don't flirt with it. The kingdom of lies belongs to the world and the father of lies. We are united with Christ, so we're to speak the truth, okay? Secondly, don't lose your temper. Don't lose your temper. Instead, be righteous. Don't hold on to it and don't give the devil a foothold. Verse 26 and 27, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Again, Paul looks back and that's a direct quote from Psalm 4, verse 4. Interesting, I encourage you to go this afternoon and read Psalm 4. I'm not going to take the time to do it. But basically, the, the summary of that is just trust in the Lord. Just trust in him. And so Paul quotes directly from Psalm 4. What's the prohibition? Well, that's a good question. There's a lot of discussion about this verse. There's a lot of controversy in some ways about it. I think the prohibition is to put away sinful anger. Anger that is temperamental. Anger that is emotional. Anger that is selfish or undisciplined or uncontrolled. Prohibition is to put that away. The replacement, well, again, there's the question. Is it righteous indignation? Is it Christ-like anger, appropriate anger? Regardless of which one it is, it is be resolved quickly in it. Don't, don't let it hang around. Place it in God's righteous hands and trust it to him. That's the replacement. The reason? Well, the reason is that anger, like the Normandy beachhead, is a place where the enemy can land and get his foot in the door and begin his destruction within the body and within the soul. Within the body of Christ and even within the soul of believer. Unresolved anger takes root and it produces bitterness. And that gives the devil an opportunity. Now the problem with this is that I don't get mad the way I should. And I don't get angry about the things that I should get angry about. And I get angry about the things that make no sense. Newman, you don't need to say anything about the copy machine this morning in the office. He and I both were frustrated might be a good word to use. Frustrated. So there's there's discussion about this one, to put it mildly. Kent Hughes, commentator that I use quite regularly, says this. Be angry and do not sin indicates that there is a proper anger, a good anger. God himself is sometimes angered. Jesus was angry when, for instance, he cleansed the temple in Mark 11. Hughes says, if we are imitators of God, we will sometimes be angry. We need to be angry, he says, like Wesley or Wilberforce at personal and societal sins. Or like Luther at doctrinal aberrations. Proper anger is a sign, he says, of spiritual life and health. So that's, that's a valid position, and, and we could see that in this text. Dr. Henry Brandt, just a pioneer in the area of Christian counseling, CCLI, he has written the book on Christian counseling in so many ways. Here's what Dr. Brandt says about this. Unrepentant and intelligent people believe they can justify their anger because God gets angry. 
This is why they comb the Gospels for any shred of evidence that Jesus got angry. The term righteous indignation, he says, just blurs the issue. Perhaps 95% of anyone's anger, he says, is plain old-fashioned sin, and we all know it. Anger plagues everyone, and we should simply face it and take Jesus up on his offer when he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. So what do we do with be angry and do not sin? Yes, Jesus did exhibit righteous, patient anger when he saw the glory of God not being displayed and held up in a place of worship. He sat down. He put together a little whip, a whip of cords. His motive was concern and zeal for the glory of God, and he quoted the Old Testament prophets as proof of that. Yeah, so Jesus did exhibit righteous anger. The Old Testament tells us that God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving sin and rebellion. It tells us in Numbers 32 that the Lord's anger burned against Israel and made them walk in the wilderness for 40 years. So, yeah, there is such a thing as righteous anger. Yes, injustice, abortion, abuse, sexual otherwise, tyrants and dictators, human trafficking. There is much around us. Drive-by shootings that shoot our citizens in the middle of the night in their bedroom. That should burn us up, church. But the problem with that is that we don't know how to control it or stop it. Right? It's just an issue. But the problem for most of us is when it comes to anger, we're playing with a loaded gun like a five-year-old. Or we're like Frodo with his ring that he cannot control. That's the problem with anger. So if we take this in the context of everything that we see in Scripture, especially in the New Testament, James would say this in chapter 1, My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, for man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Romans 12:19. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Later on in chapter 4, Paul goes in what seems to be completely contradictory when he says in verse 31, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And in Psalm 37, cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret, it only causes harm. So how do we balance that out? Again, let's think of our environment. We live in an angry environment, right? It's true politically, it's true socially, it's true economically, it's true. We live in an angry environment. For crying out loud, you can get shot for cutting somebody off on the road. So we live in an angry environment. But we also live in an angry temple. We live in an angry, with an angry heart. I have an anger issue. I get mad at the copier. I have kicked it before. <laughs> Nobody saw me. There's not a security camera in that room. Praise Jesus. But I have an anger issue with things like that. It's stupid. I've hurt my fist hitting the wall. 
We have anger on the inside of us, and it's flesh, and it's a sin. I need Jesus. And I just don't think I'm the only one. You don't have to amen that, but I need Jesus in that regard. And, and I need His Spirit's power to free me and release me into His hands so I can, I can rest in that. This is what I know about myself. I know that I need to be constantly repentant and replacing that through the renewing of my mind. And I know that I need to be quick to forgive. Jesus said that in Matthew 5. If you have an offering that you're ready to give at church, He says, if you have an offering, your gift at the, if, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother. Settle matters quickly, he says, with your adversary. So I'll leave it up to the Holy Spirit to let you work through this, but here's what I know about 99.9% of us. We have a really hard time with our anger. And we need to be really careful before we fall back on the righteous anger idea. I'm not saying we don't. I'm just saying that's a Holy Spirit's work in our lives. We need more of that. We need to be speaking truth into what around us needs to have biblical truth spoken into it. Quietness is not appropriate in some of these issues that should cause us to have that righteous indignation. We just need to be careful because we live in a culture of anger and it's catchy. Right? It is, it's worse than any pandemic we know. It just makes us sick in the church. So we need to watch it. Thirdly, don't steal. <laughs> Instead, work hard so you can give generously. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands that he may have something to share with anyone in need. The prohibition, it's straight up, don't steal. The replacement, work hard. Work hard with your own hands. What's the reason for it? So you can be Christ-like in your generosity and compassion for others. Isn't it interesting that, that the reason for this really focuses on others completely, not on ourselves, on those in need around us? So just as we live in a culture of lies and a culture of anger, we live in a culture of theft. I mean, the news has been filled with business after business. CVS drugstore closed five stores recently in San Francisco because of the loss of theft up 300% in the last two years in many retail outlets. Here's the danger. When we politicize that, we don't personalize it. And we don't look at our own hearts. It's a mess out there. I know that. I can't even buy... You know, a pack of razor blades because they're locked up. You know, some lady has to come because somebody's going to steal them. That's the culture we live in. But our tendency is to politicize it instead of personalizing it and looking within ourselves and within the body. of When, when Paul speaks of this, and he does often, turn over to First, Thess First and Second Thessalonians. Just turn to the right there a little bit. And while the believers in Thessalonica, I don't think, had turned into thieves, here's what was happening. They were presuming on the generosity of others. It seems that they were in some ways kind of taking advantage of the system. There was this attitude of entitlement. 
This attitude of laziness. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says in verse 10, We urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as you were instructed so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. In 2 Thessalonians in chapter 3, this is what he says. He goes a little further with this. 2 Thessalonians 3, starting in verse 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is serious. We command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves, you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. We did not eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. And it was not because we did not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would not give this command if anyone, excuse me, even when we were with you, we would give this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. And as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. We're paid for eight hours work. Do eight hours work. You know, you paid for a 40-hour week. Give give a 40-hour week because you're doing it as unto the Lord. I know we live in a system that seems to reward idleness. That should not squelch our compassion. That should not take away from our desire to see injustice addressed. That should not take away from our desire to give and give generously. I mean, our, our, kind of, our policy around here is kind of, look, if you come in here and ask for help from us and we're in a position to do it as a church, that's on you. Now, if you reek of alcohol and it's clear you're on something, no, we'll, we'll be wise about that. But err in the area of grace. You know, that's kind, of, that's kind of the way we look at it. But this idea of working hard so we can then be generous with an eye to the need of others. I want to be the good Samaritan. I want to be like him. I don't want to be like the thief laying in the ditch. And I don't want to be like the religious leaders walking around him saying, he made that bed, let him sleep in it. We want to be generous. We want to work hard. And we want to do it for the glory of God. And then finally, and I'll finish here. Don't badmouth. That's my translation, okay? You probably figured that out. Instead, build up and be gracious. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. The prohibition... Is just stop it with the bad mouthing. And the word there, the corrupting, that word corrupting, it's a strong word. It just means rotten, putrefying, corrupted. Right? There's nothing good about it. And so it's the kind of thing, you know, somebody get their mouth washed out for soap with soap. Uh, That's the prohibition. Stop it with the bad mouthing. The replacement is speak what is edifying, what will build up, what is needed. Speak what is appropriate in that given situation. And the reason for that is that the unity and the purity and the spiritual health of the body depends on grace. 
And grace should be something that is received and extended by the words that come out of our mouths. So here's, here's what Paul, I think, is saying here. Before you say it, or before you send it, or before we like it, or before we tweet it, just stop a minute and think. All right? Use that brain that is not being conformed to the world, but is being transformed by the renewing of that mind through the Word of God and the work of Christ. Stop. Stop before you open your mouth. Stop before you press send. Stop before you like. Stop before you tweet. And say, is this building up? Is this extending grace? Is this, through the eyes of Christ, appropriate? And is it helpful? Isn't that what you would teach your children? And, that, and, that's, and that's what it says here. Just think for a minute. Now the problem, James says, is that this little thing in my mouth is like a ship. It's like an out-of-control horse. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large, they're driven by strong winds. They are guided by very small rudder. Wherever the will of the pilot directs, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts great things. How great a forest fire is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of a life, and setting and set on fire by hell. He goes on. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile, a sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue of man. It is a restless evil. Full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the image of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing, my brothers, these things ought not to be. That's the problem. It can't be controlled. Oh, but wait. Think about the source for a second. According to Jesus in Luke chapter 6, what comes out of our mouth comes from here. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. So it's really not a brain issue, is it? It's a heart issue. That's the source of the problem. And why is it such a big deal? Well, again, listen to Jesus. Matthew 12, verse 36. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. A word-for-word -word transcript that came out of these lips is what's going to be there forever. Word for word transcript. There's a lot at stake. So what's the solution? 
Well, I think Paul gives us that in the book of Philippians. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, remember, remember the environment we're in. Environment of lies, environment of anger, environment of, of getting by with as little as we can to gain as much as we can. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. That's the solution. That's what we've been talking about here in the book of Ephesians, putting off the old, being renewed in the likeness of our mind into the likeness of Christ, and then put on the new. So think about these things that are noble. We'll wrap it up there for the day. Now, let me give you a couple of points of application. Don't start stirring yet. Almost done. Today, if you are not in Christ, if you have never trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, He alone, He alone is the way that you will experience the life you were created to live. That's the only way. He alone is the truth. You'll not hear it from Him, from anybody else except Him. He alone is the way. So come to Christ. Christian, this is who we are in Christ, and this is how we're called to love. That's what it boils down to. This is how we love one another. All right? We love one another as we speak truth. We love one another as we control our emotions and don't let them get the best of us. We love one another as we extend and work and serve in each other. That's what it means to love as Christ loved us. So, so that's who we are. And that means we have to guard our hearts. Susan and I are coming up on our anniversary on May the 18th. Um, and it was on our anniversary that Mount St. Helens blew up in 1990. Okay? So you can always remember our anniversary by the... What did I say? Well, who's keeping count? I mean, <laughs> apparently she is. I'm sorry, baby. You know. Yeah, 1980. Jeez, that's been a long time. (laughs) So, So, before we get too distracted... Guard your heart. Let me, let me show you why I'm even mentioning Mount Helens. The explosion from that volcano could be heard 600 miles away. And we've all heard of Harry Truman, you know, who wouldn't leave the mountain. Harry Truman and 57 others who died there never heard a sound. Within 30 miles of Mount St. Helens, you couldn't hear it. Because the force of the explosion blew the sound straight up into the atmosphere. And it was the echo of that sound that bounced back down into this circle that extended out 30 or 40 miles beyond the mountain. And it was so loud that they couldn't hear. Church, that's the world we live in. The lies and the anger and the tribalism and the politicization of everything is so loud that I fear we don't even hear it anymore. And it kills us. And it kills our witness. It kills our holiness. It kills our uniqueness. It makes us no different from the world around us. Because it is so loud. And so don't let the culture and the environment or even the the truth of who we are outside of Christ, deafen us 
Don't let it. Don't let its lies and its anger and its arrogance and its vulgarity and its cheating sedate us or numb us or capture us. Don't let the devil have a foothold. We're going to talk next week about what it means to grieve the Holy Spirit. We may take the whole sermon on that, but we'll get to that next week. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the living power of your word, and I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'll take it and do a work in my heart. That, Lord, you'll do a work in each of our lives, that we'll get the logs out of our own eyes in this regard, God, before we go worrying about somebody else. So, Father, I pray you do a personal work in each of us so that corporately together as the faithful, pure body of Christ, Lord, we can, we can know that community that you've called us to be. Help us to love one another, Father, in what we say and how we relate to one another. Help us as fathers exhibit this in our homes to our wives and our children. Help us as, as moms. Help us as, as men and women in the workforce, Lord. Be different from the culture around us. God, revive your people. Would you not that we could rejoice in you again? Grant us repentance in these areas, Father. I pray for the sake of the glory of your precious name, Jesus. Amen.